If you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. We're going to start reading in verse 1 today. We're going to look at the first six verses. Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Coming off of the heels of the defense of his gospel and his apostleship, remember Paul has been arguing about how the fact that he received his gospel directly from Jesus on the Damascus Road. It wasn't something that, that Peter had walked him through or James had walked him through. Uh, and then he even gives that example, what we just finished up last week, where he has to confront Peter uh, because Peter has been distancing himself in Antioch uh, from the Gentile believers in order to please the Jewish believers. And so Paul goes on the defensive of his gospel, preaching about justification by faith alone. But here he gets back to the point that he started with back in chapter 1 and verse 6, where he shared his astonishment. He said, I'm astonished at you Galatians that you have so quickly deserted Jesus for some other gospel. Well, in 3.1, he carefully takes aim and fires once again. <laughs> oh, foolish Galatians. Now, for those of you who have read through Paul's letters to the churches, you will not find a more direct, charged, cutting uh, statement that he has made, a very emotional appeal that he makes to the Galatians. MacArthur helps us understand the depth of the word that Paul chooses here. Uh, it does not... Uh, speak of, of mental deficiency. Uh, it's not what he's getting at, but mental laziness, mental carelessness. The believers in Galatia were not stupid. They simply failed, MacArthur writes, to use their spiritual intelligence, their discernment, when they were faced with the unscriptural gospel-destroying teaching of the Judaizers, those who had come into the church, and they were teaching Jesus, yes, plus circumcision, or plus dietary laws, or plus anything else, they were not using their heads. Remember the story that we find at the end of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus meets up with a couple of disciples who are heading home from Jerusalem on the Emmaus Road. And uh, they're, they're talking about all the events that have taken place this last weekend, crucifixion, resurrection, and Jesus comes alongside, and they're having this conversation, and he, he chimes in, and at one point, Jesus actually says, this, this is Luke 24, 25, he says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. It's the same word. Jesus isn't saying, hey, you guys are just stupid. He's saying, 
you haven't connected the pieces yet. You're missing something. And from there, Jesus explains to them and puts all of those pieces together. And then as soon as they get who he is, he disappears and vanishes at that point. See, they were talking with Christ about the Christ, and they couldn't put those things together. That's somewhat of what's going on here in Galatia. They were not connecting the dots. They had gotten sloppy in their theology. Uh, They were an easy target for false teachers. And, And we have to please, please, please understand that this isn't just a problem that the churches in the Galatia region struggled with a couple thousand years ago. It wasn't that there was something in the water there that caused them to be led astray more easily, deserting Jesus for some other gospel. It's a human problem. This is a problem from the beginning of creation. What, what immediately happened in the garden? There came another voice, other than the voice of God, other than what, what is truth. And it came in the form of a serpent, and it tempted Adam and Eve away. They were drawn away. They deserted God for some other voice. In fact, in his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, who was a a faithful pastor, a faithful friend, a faithful church leader, but he says this, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Why does he say that to Timothy? Because Paul knows we're prone to wander. We're prone to veer off course. So have you gotten sloppy with your theology? Have you gotten lazy with your theology? Do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe what you believe? Your theology cannot simply be my theology. You have to know what you believe and why you believe it. That's one of the reasons why we uh, work through books so methodically like this. We're working through uh, the letter to the Galatians so so that you can see just expositionally where theology comes from. So you can see line by line what God is saying to us. And I want you to see it as we move through these books so clearly that when we're done, you're like, yeah, I get it. I see where that comes from. I understand, hopefully, you understand justification by faith alone and not by works because of what we've talked about for the last few weeks. This fall, we're gonna, this fall or maybe in the winter, I don't know yet, we're going to launch another discovery group study that's going to tackle those core doctrines. Maybe a great opportunity for you to jump on board with a study like that so you can just deepen your understanding of what we believe, why we believe it, backing it up with those scriptural things. But let's dig into what Paul has to say to the foolish Galatians. The first of six rhetorical questions Paul has for the Galatians is a bit of a strange one. He says, who, who bewitched you? Who bewitched you? Now, when I read that, I think of that old show, Bewitched, where the lady, isn't that the one where she wrinkled her nose or something like that, and, and, and everybody did whatever she wanted? It, that's the idea. Who cast a spell on you? Someone has misled the Galatians. I don't know if you've ever watched videos of somebody being hypnotized, but that's just really creepy, creepy stuff. It's in a sense a, a spell has been cast on them. They're just doing what somebody else has told them to do. Well, that's the kind of word that Paul uses here. He's describing that kind of phenomenon. In, in, in the case of the Galatians and truly anyone who's led away, there's, there's always a false teacher, but there is Satan who stands behind the false teacher, who's working to deceive. As a matter of fact, it says in the New Testament that he is the God of this world who's blinded the eyes of men. He's a roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour. 
It says, uh, Jesus says uh, to Peter, Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, to destroy you. The, the reason Paul uses such a strong term is because what he reminds them of in the next line there in, in verse 1, where he says this, is, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now that line can present a few problems. What, what exactly does he mean? How is it that the Galatians saw Jesus publicly portrayed? Uh, my take, my understanding is just Paul is referencing his no doubt uh, very uh, impassioned presentation of Jesus Christ crucified when him and Barnabas first showed up in the churches of Iconium, Derby, Lystra in this particular region. Paul's gospel presentation was vivid. It was a, a vivid word portrayal of the significance of the cross of Christ. Yet that portrayal has since been dismissed. They've forgotten it. They, they've left it behind. They've deserted it for some uh, new gospel. And Paul says, what witchcraft has brought about this change of mind and change of heart and change of direction in your life? Now, if you thought verse 1 is tough, he digs in a little bit further. Lives are on the line. Souls are on the line. The glory of God is on the line. The gospel is on the line. And so Paul, like a dogmatic lawyer, just launches into a barrage of rhetorical questions that's aimed at the Galatians. Notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. You, you kind of think when he says that, it's the I've just got one question for you, but then he's got five more, right? He just loads in question upon question. And so, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Now, just think about that question. That's a question that, that we all have to answer. Did I receive the Holy Spirit by doing the works of the law or by faith upon hearing the Word of God? In the question, Paul wants it to be clear. They have received the Spirit. He doesn't question that. He views them as genuine believers. Uh, this, in the last question that we see in verse 5, he makes it clear again that the manifestation of the Spirit is present in their congregation and in their lives. He also wants them to remember by what means they received the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law? Did you receive the Spirit by being circumcised? Well, it's, it's in a sense a, a trick question for them because most of these are Gentiles who have never been circumcised. They haven't followed that work of the law. And so either they, they have the Spirit or they don't have the Spirit. And so he's, he's drawing them in. Did you receive the Spirit by keeping the dietary restrictions of the law? Rhetorical questions, the answer is no. So how did they receive it? By faith. They received it by faith in the word of the gospel that they heard from Paul. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The real issue here is that the false teachers were saying, unless you keep the law, unless, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be a true child of God. You can't be a true son of Abraham. But Paul argues if you have the Spirit, which you do, Galatians, then you're already a child of God. 
then you're already secure in who you are. Then you're already a son or a daughter of Abraham. Uh, let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, uh, just to support this idea. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And I put in the bulletin there a whole list of other uh, passages that, that speak to this truth that we receive the Spirit upon the point of faith. And that's Paul's point. You didn't receive it by doing the works of the law. You received it by putting your faith in what Christ has done. Are you so foolish, he goes on. Having begun in the Spirit, and, and now you're being perfected in the flesh? Paul, Paul assures them that, that the Christian life is not like tag team wrestling, right? So uh, the Spirit gets in the ring for a while and then tags you in and you jump in. It's not like a, a relay race where the Spirit runs the first lap and then hands the baton off to you and you run the rest of the way. I believe it's safe to assume that even the false teachers didn't deny the message of Christ crucified. They, they recognized that, yes, Jesus is an important part, but one of their problems and their other gospel was they viewed Jesus as an entryway. So, so Jesus gets us in, but then we have to take over to make true progress in our spiritual life and spiritual development. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law. You should do this. You should do that. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And the rules would begin to flow. To this Paul says, you were doing so well, beginning with the Spirit. Why are you now depending on the flesh? Why are you trying to rebuild the law that's been destroyed? The issue here is not necessarily one of the word we've learned, justification, being declared to be righteous by the work of Christ on the cross and the empty tomb. Uh, this is an issue of sanctification. What is sanctification? That is our progress in conforming to the image of Jesus day in, day out, week in, week out, growing in holiness in this life. Justification, sanctification. Justification comes by faith in Jesus. Sanctification comes by faith in Jesus. So we talked about last week. We're sanctified as we have faith and recognize our union with Jesus. When he died, I died. When he rose to new life, I now have a new life. I'm not beholden to the law. I'm not beholden to the flesh anymore. But our great temptation comes when we view sanctification as something we do, something we have to do in our own power. We say, give me that baton. I'll run this lap. Or tag me in. I'll deal with this issue. And we begin to follow rules and check boxes off in our lives of spiritual things. We say things or think things like, I read my Bible today, therefore I'm more like Jesus. Well, not necessarily. What's your motivation in reading the Bible? What's your motivation in coming to a church gathering today? What's the goal? What's the objective? It could be to be seen of men. Jesus deals with this over and over again in the Gospels with the Pharisees. He says they stand in the street and they pray. Praying's a good thing, but they do it to be seen of men. And they do it with lofty words. 
And they have the reward for that. Or do you come to sit at the feet of Jesus and worship? See, what matters in this area is, is quite subjective because it's the intentions of the heart. So what Jesus is getting at in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, you've heard that it's said, you shouldn't murder people. Well, we're all in this room. I got that one down. And as they're listening to him, they're like, yeah, I like that. But then he says, what? But I tell you, if you're angry in your heart, if you have evil intention inside in the way you think, what is he, what's he dealing with? He gets to the motives of the matter. Not just the action of the matter, the motive of the matter. And that's what we're dealing with here. Is the spirit the motivator of your life? Is the spirit the goal, the guide? Or is it, is it just you? Because only one of those leads to greater Christ-likeness and greater holiness. I want to read this quote that, that provides really, I think, a helpful illustration of, of what this looks like and the tension that can exist here. This is from Thomas Schreiner. And he's writing about sexual temptation. He says, sexual pleasures are intense. But the Lord teaches us that sexual pleasure is to be restricted to marriage and that sexual sin is destructive. We get that, right? God teaches, here's the boundaries for this. Here's what it's designed for. Anything outside of that is destructive. So what does it mean to live by faith and the Holy Spirit in this area of life? We're not called upon to try as hard as we can to avoid sexual sin. Growing up, that seemed to be the message. Just don't do it. Just say no. Don't do those things. Try as hard as you can to avoid those kinds of sins. But instead, we're called upon to trust God. Knowing that he loves us. And if we trust him, we will believe that violating his command in this area will damage us. It will ruin us. Our obedience in this area, in other words, flows from our faith. The great hymn says, trust and obey, but it would be better to rephrase it, for those who trust will obey. And those who disobey show that they don't trust God's goodness and his power. Do you see the distinctions in the motivating factor here? It's not just, I, I shouldn't do this because the law says it's wrong. It's, I shouldn't do this because a God who loves me says this is dangerous. And I want to trust him that this is the right thing to do and the right thing not to do. The warning here is don't abandon the spirit. Don't think that you, by your actions, your good deeds, your morality, can grow yourself in holiness. When you begin to think that way, well, let me just say, when we begin to think that way, you know what's growing? Our pride, our arrogance. Our hearts are lifted up against God because we feel like I can do this on my own. Don't think that your actions, your good deeds, your morality can earn you more favor with God or somehow cause him to love you more. Here's a great verse to consider as we think about this particular question, this point. 
Philippians 1.6, familiar to many of you, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who will bring that work to completion? He will bring that work to completion. He will see us through. Don't rip the baton out of the Spirit's hands. Don't say, I want to tag in and tackle this one. No, continue to trust in the Spirit. The next question, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. In this verse, Paul reminds them of their own painful experiences in coming to Christ. It was not easy for them. This is always something that's quite foreign to us uh, because we don't understand, we don't get persecution in turning to Jesus like they did. Many of them lost their jobs. Some of them would lose their lives. Some of them would lose even more the lives of their families and friends and so forth. And Paul says, you were persecuted for following Jesus and if you turn away from him now, your suffering is in vain. What was the point of all of that pain? Uh, Paul has such a unique take on the idea of suffering. Paul, throughout the New Testament, he wears suffering as a badge of honor. I think it's, 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 it's foreign to me to think that way, but that's the way the other apostles were too. Remember when they pulled him in and said, you gotta stop talking about Jesus, and they beat him up and threw him out? What did they do? They said, we're rejoicing. We were able to suffer like Jesus suffered. Paul says, I wanna know him so well, I wanna engage in the fellowship of his suffering." And he encourages the Galatians to remember that very thing. And for us today, as persecution may be coming, we always have to be ready for that. I mean, you see things that are happening present day, we don't know which direction those things will continue to go. But we need to be ready for that. And, and be, don't be resistant to that. That's what I'm trying to say. Why? We should rejoice that we're able to fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus for his sake. There's more that will come to be said about that particular point. But let's get to his final question. Verse five. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And moving into verse six, because it continues, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in the final question, Paul again comes back to the issue of the Spirit versus the law. It is the Spirit that empowers them. It is the Spirit that has worked miracles among them, not the law. Why would you ever go back to the law, Paul says? It's, it's dead. It only leads to death. Why would you deny the powerful work of the Spirit in your life and in your churches? It made me think of Jeremiah 2 where... Yahweh speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Israel says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've carved out cisterns, broken cisterns that don't even hold water. And he gives us this picture that you can either drink from this fresh flowing spring of water or you can dig a hole in the ground and let water catch in there and sit and all the bugs and all the gross and you can drink out of that. It's similar to what Paul's saying here. Why would you go back to that hole in the ground when there is a life-giving spirit to be had? And then by way of illustration, and I think there's a couple reasons for this illustration. One is, I think Paul probably, as he was there with these churches, 
Abraham came up in conversations. But we would certainly know that any, any Judaizers, anybody who wants to go back to the law and draw people back to the law, they're going to be talking a lot about Abraham. And so Paul says, you want to talk about Abraham? Let's talk about Abraham. And he brings Abraham into the conversation. And you know Abraham. Abraham is the man, the, the no, nobody really knew this man who God says, I want you to leave your hometown and I want to give you a new land, a promised land. And I want to make of you a great people. We'll talk more specifically about that next week. But he reminds the Galatians that Abraham believed God. Abraham had faith in God, not in himself. And it was that belief in God that was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was chosen not because of his expert ability in keeping the law. He was a sinner just like you and me. Look at his life. The Old Testament doesn't shy away from the sinfulness of all of these people that we so revere. Abraham was counted righteous. Why? Because he trusted in God. Remember that key verse that we've seen already, the just live by their faith. We're righteous because of our faith in God, our trust in Him. In the coming weeks, we're going to be talking a good deal about Abraham. And so I want to challenge you. Uh, refresh, your, refresh your understanding of Abraham. Go back to Genesis. Uh, read his story. Genesis 12 is where it begins. You can follow that through. Refamiliarize yourself. But today I have, I have three implications I want us to consider. Three things as we think about what Paul shared. The first one is this. Know your theology. Know your theology. Don't get lazy with what you believe and why you believe it. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in you. Be like the Bereans who Paul says that they were more noble than others because they searched the scriptures. They took what Paul shared and they, they looked at it and they studied it. They, they, they looked at the whole of scripture and made sure it made sense. Don't be a member who, who blindly follows. Study the word for yourself. The reason that's so important is because there, there will always be other gospels. There will always be those who are at work trying to, trying to twist the good news of Jesus into something that it is not. And we have to be ready to know the truth so well that we can spot those counterfeits and we can dismiss them. This means we have to read, we have to study, we have to meditate on the scriptures, we have to be faithful to, uh, to, to church gatherings, to watching those things. I don't want you to blindly follow me, but, but I am called to be your pastor and I'm called to teach and to shepherd and share God's truth with you. You need to study together as a family. Right now, media may be a good resource for your family to use. But I'll tell you this, be careful there. There's, there's hundreds of lessons and teachers, and, and you have to be discerning. You have to be discerning as you're listening to podcasts and a lot of things that, that technology has given us these days. We have to continue to be discerning and weigh those things against the Word of God. You can involve yourself in Discovery Group, our young adult ministry, your kids in Discovery Kids. Awana Clubs will be starting soon. Read books. We've got a room full of them over here. I've got an office full of them. I'd love to pass some of those along if you're wanting to deepen your understanding. But in the end, here's, here's the issue. It's going to take time, isn't it? 
It takes time to do those things. It takes time to dig into God's word. And Satan wants to keep us so busy, so wrapped up in the concerns of this life that, that time just gets choked out. It gets pulled away. It's where we each have to weigh in our lives the temporal versus the eternal. What am I going to give my time to? Am I going to give my time to the things that are temporal, this world that are just going to vanish? Or do I want to give my time to something that will last and make a lasting impasse, a lasting impact on lives? And this is where the Galatians became lazy. They just simply went with what the false teachers were saying and didn't weigh those things. Some of you may be thinking, well, that big list of things you just gave sounds pretty legalistic. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of stuff to do. That's a lot of checklist kind of stuff. And, and it can be, depending on your motivation. Depending on why you're doing what you're doing. Simply doing those things doesn't make you more spiritual. I can certainly attest to you that I've led many Bible studies and taught many times, and I walked away 0% more spiritual because my motives weren't right. Because my heart wasn't in it the way it should have been. Is your motivation to know God? Is your motivation to make Him known? Is your motivation born out of a love for God? Is your motivation born out of a, a love for other people? Then, then get to work on those things. Because that's of the Spirit. That's the Spirit leading and guiding. Or is your motivation to feel or look spiritual? Is your motivation simply to gain knowledge so that you can appear to know the answers when Bible trivia comes up or something along those lines? Is your motivation to earn some sort of favor with God? I'll, I'll do these things so God shows me favor. Maybe a God, I'll scratch your back if you, you scratch mine. So I'll read my Bible today. I'll talk to these people. I'll teach that lesson as long as you bless me as long as you give me something in return. You know this, our hearts are desperately sick. <laughs> we get twisted in our motivations. We always have to check our motives with, with prayer, with the Holy Spirit, understanding that it's our, our union with Christ. I'm gonna give you a prayer here at the very end that will kind of help weed some of that out. But I wanna give you this quote from living the cross-centered life. C.J. Haney writes, he says, we work hard at obeying God's word. We read our Bibles. We pray. We fast. We memorize and we meditate on scripture. We share the gospel. We serve our church. God commands us in his word to do many things and our obedience to them is both pleasing to him and brings blessing to our lives. But not one of these good spiritual activities adds to our justification. We're never more saved or we're never more loved by God. Our work is motivated by the grace of God that has been poured out in our lives. We've said this before that, that the only thing that pleases God is Christ. But we have Christ in us. That's justification. Finally, I want to challenge you to dig deeper in this area of justification and sanctification. 
understanding the differences. This is, is key for us to understand our relationship with Christ. It's key for our spiritual growth. Some of you live under constant condemnation in your life. You would profess to be a believer. You're a follower of Jesus. But every time you mess up, it seems the world comes crashing down on you. You live under the weight of that condemnation and you, you vacillate from that to, to things like legalism and then you say, well, well now I've got to make up for, for what I messed up and you try to do works and works and works and, and try to fix this yourself. That's not freedom. That's not what we're called to in Christ. Let me give you just very quickly a few distinctions between justification and sanctification. Justification is being declared righteous. Sanctification is being made righteous. Justification is our position before God. It's a position that becomes permanently ours at the time of our conversion when we put our faith in Christ. Sanctification is the practice that continues throughout our life on earth. It's something we continue to do. Another quote, sanctification is about our obedience. It does involve work. It's empowered by God's Spirit. We strive. We fight sin. We study Scripture and pray even when we don't feel like it. In sanctification, we flee temptation. We press on. We run hard in the pursuit of holiness. And we become more and more sanctified. The power of the gospel conforms us more and more closely with ever-increasing clarity to the image of Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. Justification is immediate and it's complete upon your conversion. You'll never be more justified than you are the first moment you trust in the person and the finished work of Christ. Sanctification, it is progressive process, as we all well know. You'll be more sanctified as you continue in grace-motivated obedience in your life. Justification is objective. It's Christ's work for us. Sanctification is subjective. It's Christ's work within us. I've got an article downstairs that you can pick up on your way out if you'd like. I'll also share it. Several resources that'll help you begin to delineate between justification and sanctification. This is a huge issue. This is a huge area that causes us many struggles in following Christ. And so I encourage you, get to know this. It's going to continue to pop its head up as we move through Galatians. And I want you to be able to have understanding of those things. But I want to close with this prayer that C.J. Mahaney says he prays before he engages in the day, in tasks, in life. It's going to be on the screen behind me. But I think this is a great prayer that encapsulates what we should be thinking and believing as we move through our days. He says, Lord, I ask for your grace and strength as I seek to serve you today. I thank you that all your blessings flow to me from your son's work on my behalf. I'm justified by your grace alone. None of my efforts to obey you and grow in sanctification Add to your finished work at the cross. Do you see them both there? We're justified in the work of Christ. But that's why we should be motivated to serve Him, to love Him, to grow in holiness, deepen our, 
our faith in him and our trust in him as we navigate through this life. Would you bow with me this morning for just a moment? Paul's questions move in several different directions today. And so, my hope and prayer has been today that, that the Spirit would have free reign in your life. Maybe it's, maybe it's you trying to take over. And you're seeing the pride of that now. That you've tried to be holy on your own. You've tried to grow, but in your own power and by your own wisdom and not based upon your union with Jesus. Maybe your motivation's off. Maybe you came today just simply because you knew if you didn't, somebody was going to call you, they were going to bother you. Maybe pray a prayer of repentance and asking the Spirit to, to begin to motivate you to the right things. If you're here today and you were in any way depending on your, your works, the fact that you did come to church, the fact that you do read your Bible, the fact that you're a pretty nice person, and you're depending upon that to be the thing that restores your relationship with God. Only Jesus can do that. Only He lived the perfect life. Only He offers us justification, being declared righteous in the throne room of God. Turn to Christ today. I want to give you just a moment to pray, to consider. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus. As Paul argues here with the Galatians, with the false teachers, with this other gospel, he argues about our freedom. We're free in the Spirit, we're free from the works of the flesh, from the law. Christ has set us free. Yet we're so inclined, I'm so inclined, to be drawn back into the law, to my flesh, to myself. There's a pride that consistently pulls me back. And I pray for myself and for, for all of these that I love here this morning. That Spirit, you would do a sanctifying work in us working out what we know to be true, that we're united with Christ, that we're free in Him, that when He died, I died. When He rose, I rose. And I have new life in Him. I'm free to move forward in Jesus. Lord, convince us of that every day as we face temptation. As we want to get angry at traffic. As we want to... Uh, in, engage in, in activity that we know is, is contrary to your will, what you would have for us in our lives. God, help us to live out of that union with Jesus. Help us to experience the freedom that Christ came to give. And Lord, for those who are here today who may be just simply depending on their own works, I pray that you would bring them to repentance. You would help them to see that it is Jesus and it is Jesus alone that saves. I thank you for this letter. Thank you for preserving your word for us so that we could even deal with these more technical passages as we think through uh, Paul's debate, Paul's discussions. 
but we thank you for the theology, the doctrine that we can understand as a result. And I pray that it would be effective in our lives, not just to hear it today, but to do it. And so help us to have good discussion today, good fellowship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.